I remember my first class. It was it was super immersive and um and and almost almost shockingly so. <laughs> so that by the end of the class, I was so overwhelmed by this this sensory experience that I that I as soon as it was over, I had to sit. I had to lie down and was just like. <laughs> What did I just experience? I, uh -huh. I sort of liken it to what somebody might have experienced in the late 1800s when they used the telephone for the first time. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. I'm Dan Gable, Technology Manager for the LRC. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language, Cornell LRC director Dick Feldman speaks with Christopher Kaiser of Columbia University. Chris is the program manager of the Shared Course Initiative, which connects less commonly taught language classrooms at Columbia, Cornell, and Yale using high-definition video conferencing. The two discuss the challenges and advantages of offering these classes and reflect on lessons learned over more than half a decade of building a collaborative distance learning program for less commonly taught languages. So, Chris, is that kind of like any sort of uh, online language class? Um, I think that's that's really the first question that people tend to have. Mm -hmm. And um, there are many ways in which you can collaborate um, through technology to, to share a language class or to share any class. But it's it's a little different in the sense that what we're doing is, is really a classroom-based synchronous model. So you go into a classroom, you have two large screens, um, you're joined with other classmates and you're linking up with a uh, teacher maybe on the other side and and so it's a it's really quite different in a way it's very different from what you might experience with Skype or um, or any other publicly or commonly used um, video conferencing application it's really um, very high definition very dynamic very immersive and engaging um, so that's that's something that people they tend to think, oh, this is going to be like Skype, but it's, uh -huh. it's really uh, categorically different, I would say. Can you join the class uh, with your pajamas from your room? <laughs> Some people think that you can, um, or they try to, uh -huh. but yeah, no, we, we, don't let that, we don't let that happen because it's really important for us to make sure that, that you have the same experience in this classroom as you would in a face-to-face in a -face classroom. All of the norms and expectations that you that you might have for going to class should be the same here, even if your teacher is not on site, if your teacher is somewhere else. Yeah, a lot of students come to <clears throat> a place like Cornell and don't think of themselves as taking what they think of as online remote classes. Uh, what's been the student reaction to the class environment uh, of this type? Yeah, you know, it's it tends to be very positive. Um, I think, first of all, students are happy that they're able to take a class that maybe they didn't think initially was going to be available. Um, you what, know, what sort of languages are we talking about here? So these are these are less commonly taught languages. So not not necessarily Spanish or Chinese, but rather languages like Tibetan or Romanian, Sinhala, uh, Zulu, Yoruba. These so kinds of languages. really less commonly taught <laughs> yeah. languages. Yeah, um, and. And yeah, the students, you know, uh, unfortunately, I don't think that we're always reaching all the students that, that might be interested in these languages, because so many times all the students say, you know, I had no idea that you had this, and, and I was so happy to discover it. So yeah, it's really a question of, um, of giving students an opportunity to, to 
explore not just a language, but also a culture, a history, uh, a whole other way of thinking that maybe they didn't know was available to them. I was just in a uh, Sinhala class. For those of you that don't know, that's the uh, main uh, language of Sri Lanka. And the student said, it was the end of the class, and we were chatting a bit, and the student said, oh yeah, this is my favorite class. It's my favorite class <laughs> I've had at Cornell. It's so great to connect back with my heritage and my and my family through learning this language. So he seemed very positive about it. You know, a, a decent number of students that we have are, are heritage learners. So they've had some exposure to the language growing up. Maybe it's a language that, they, that their parents spoke in the kitchen, um, but they might not have had their formal education in that language. So that's definitely one of the big opportunities that the Shared Course Initiative provides. Uh-huh. What other reasons do students take uh, really almost never taught languages <laughs> sure. like that? I think that the, the <clears throat> another reason is, is for research. If you're a graduate student or a PhD student and you're learning about an area of the world that is, um, you know, that one of these languages is associated with, then, then you'd learn the language. But there are other reasons, too. I had a, we had a student at, Col- at Columbia who took Sinhala because he wanted to write a novel set in Sri Lanka. He was a, a creative writing um, mm-hmm. master's student. And he, he took the language, and he, and he did really well. He, he, he really learned a lot, even though it's a difficult language. And, um, and yeah, now I think he's, he's finishing his, his book. Oh, yeah. oh, that's a nice story, yeah. Right. So what do the teachers think of it? Is it a completely different way of teaching? Do they have to redo their class and go do a whole lot of work to teach this way? Well, this is a great question <clears throat> because um, I actually taught in this, in this format once uh, f- about two years ago. I was a graduate student at Yale, and I was in the Italian department, and I was asked to teach an Italian class from New Haven to Yale NUS, which is the which is a campus associated with with Yale, um, and that's in Singapore. So I was in New Haven. My students were in Singapore. A uh, twelve or thirteen hour difference, depending on what time of year it was, and and I found it to be a very engaging experience. I remember my first class, it was, it was super immersive and, um, and, and almost, almost shockingly so. <laughs> so that by the end of the class, I was so overwhelmed by this, this sensory experience that, I, that I, as soon as it was over, I had to, sit, I had to lie down and was just <laughs> like, what did I just experience? I, uh-huh. I sort of liken it to what somebody might have experienced in the late 1800s when they used the telephone for the first time. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. It's just a, a, new, a new category of experience. But we quickly get accustomed to it. I've told this story a few times, so you'll have to forgive me if you've heard it before, but it's a, it's a great story. Um, we were learning about some of the various climate-related words like rain and snow and... Uh, sun and things like that in my in my Italian class where the students were in Singapore yeah so they were in Singapore I was in New Haven and it was February and there was quite a bit of snow on the ground um, so we were learning about about these words and the a student who was from Russia was saying how it's always hot in Singapore and she you know she never gets to see snow which you know obviously there's plenty of snow in Russia Mm-hmm. And I said, there's snow here. And, uh, and she said, snow? And I said, yeah. And she said, I love snow. This was all in Italian. She was able to do it at this point. And I said, wait one minute. And I, I ran upstairs because you know, it was in the, the lower level of the Yale 
Center for Language Study. I took a chunk of snow, because it was icy snow, it was in chunks, came down, and I said, look, snow. And she said, I love snow. And she jumped up, and she ran towards the screen <laughs> and touched the screen and touched the snow on the screen. Uh-huh. And I was like, wow, uh, that was a pretty visceral <laughs> reaction. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it was, it, it kind of, in a way, kind of shows you how the, the technology can, can bridge distance and, and really give you um, a genuine experience, even, even at such a distance. Uh-huh. Yeah. I guess you restrained yourself from throwing the snowball at the camera. Then. <laughs> I, I, I did not do that. No. <laughs> that would not have been good. Yeah. Um, you know, the, uh, the technology is, there's a little bit of a learning curve, but, but not too much. And once you, once you do that, the, the technology is not really a problem. I think the bigger question, the, the thing that takes a little more time is the, the pedagogy, is refining the pedagogy. Because every teacher starts out knowing how to teach in a classroom, in a face-to-face classroom. And when you're put in this new environment, you know, you can try to introduce the, the pedagogy at a theoretical level beforehand, but it's really kind of a learn by experience. So you make a hypothesis about what might work. You um, try out a solution for translating a pedagogical maneuver that you would do in a face-to-face classroom in this new distance context, and maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, and you refine it and develop it such that over time, what started out maybe as a face-to-face class you go through a couple of different phases. So you've got the, you know, you're a teacher of uh, less commonly taught language, then you start teaching it in this format. And what you're doing is based very much on what you did previously in the face-to-face class. But over time and over the course of several semesters, what happens is your class naturally evolves into a different version of that class, such Mm. that it's really optimized for the distance environment. Don't the... um remote students, the ones who aren't at the same site uh, with the teacher and, and see the teacher and the other students on a screen, don't they feel kind of like second-class citizens? Well, there's, there's definitely the concern that they, that they might, but I think that, that we do a pretty good job of, of trying to integrate them in a, in a couple of different ways. I think that one of the best ways or one of the most important things that we do is the instructors travel to the remote sites. And oh. um, and you actually they actually meet each other and, and many instructors have reported that once they do that then the 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 dynamic in the class changes that they have a a deeper connection with the student. There, there's there there still is something about having a face to actual face to face at least occasional contact. Well, what's what's so interesting about that is when you get to know somebody through a video high definition video conferencing, you you get about. I would say maybe 85% of that person. Mm-hmm. You understand them mm-hmm. in, a, in a certain way, and your mind kind of fills in the gaps. But when you meet them in, in you know, face-to-face, when you meet them in real life, and you, you see the ways in which what you hypothesized about what that person would be like is a little bit different in real uh-huh. life. And so you kind of redo your image in your mind of what that person is like. Uh-huh. Um, I had a student who from, from Yale and U.S. who visited me in New Haven after after the class was over and he was he when we first met he was like shocked because he's like wow you're so much taller than i thought i had i thought you were like 57 and you're 62 and i'm like yeah wow um, so yeah there's always this this funny moment of estrangement but also recognition and there are some ways in which the the distance format kind of allows students to feel a little bit less pressure than he might in a in a face-to-face setting so it's not 
it's it's a complex phenomenon. It's not something that just is, you know, it's like this or like that. It's a whole uh, sequence of emotions and feelings that 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 you really you really have to experience for for yourself. Uh-huh. Uh, I can't I can't describe it very well. I don't know if you've experienced that too. Well, yes. Uh, when you get to know the students, when you run into some of those students uh, live, it, it it is it is a different thing, for sure. And I've sometimes had meetings and all with people that I had already seen face to face, and you do get just a little different impression. On the other hand, you can do your business. That's true. Uh, yeah, uh, it, it can work. <clears throat> Absolutely. And if if I to just um, pick up on your on that question a little bit more, one thing that we've started to encourage and that's been happening more frequently is for there to be ways in which students can actually meet each other or maybe they can do something together or um, do go to a restaurant together or, or attend some kind of function together and that that really creates some um, in-person bonding experiences that, that, that tend to be very valuable well how about even the basic uh, teaching move of uh, doing pair work uh, does that always have to be my pair always have to be at the same site or can they do pair work across uh, sites yeah, that's that's a that's a big question that, that teachers tend to have, and and it seems that instructors have developed different approaches to this um, to this challenge. One approach that the Tamil instructor at uh, Columbia has has found productive is that he kind of sees the three different sites because he taught a, a, a multi-site oh. class. He sees them as teams, and so he'll create a, an activity that. Everybody has to try to solve a you know some type of puzzle or some type of mm-hmm. you know complete a task um, and you know we'll see which team does better or does it faster or, or, or something like that so th- so that's one approach but there are other ways of doing pair work that that work pretty well um, and you know as you get more accustomed to them then they and they can integrate very well I think that um, we've used iPads very productively so an iPad at one site can pair with an iPad at another mm-hmm. site through zoom or through Skype and if you have headphones um, and a microphone on those headphones, then you can really just kind of go off and and work with a student like that. I mean, sometimes these are these are uh, uh, languages and cultures where the students are really quite interested in the culture and the cultural practices that go along with it. Yeah. So, are there examples of times when a class, even across sites, has really engaged in cultural practices that have that have kind of brought them together? Yeah. Um, you know, that's something, as, as I mentioned, that's something that we really try to encourage. And, and the reason for that is a language is not just text. It's not just what you get out of Google Translate. A language is an accretion of human experience. It's a history. It's a culture. It's politics. It's, it's so much more than just base-level communication. And so cultural practices or uh, cultural-specific events are, are key to that. And just two weeks ago, we had the... Tibetan students and the Tibetan instructors come together at Columbia to to celebrate the the Tibetan New Year, Losar, and um, and we had some students who were taking Tibetan from Yale come down to New York City for to part uh-huh. to take play, to take part in that event. And you know uh, there was there's a lot to it. There's um, food and there's uh, decorations and 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 it's really kind of a a collective ritual. And I, I think it's particularly interesting, given that Tibetan language uh, speakers are in a in a situation of of diaspora 
So, you know, they're kind of recreating an, an event for uh, from a location that's that's not necessarily the same as it was when the when the mm. uh, ritual was was developed. So there's a lot of theoretically interesting um, pieces associated with something like this. But at the base level, it's, it's a great opportunity for the students to interact with one another, but also in a in a way that's that's relevant to what they're studying. Uh huh. Uh huh. I know our uh, Yoruba teacher has gone to Colombia and um, had uh, Nigerian gone traveled to Queens and got into a Nigerian restaurant and right. uh, had that experience with, their, with with his students. Foods. Uh, important part of any uh, culture <laughs> sure. for sure um the uh <clears throat> the zulu class traveled to uh new york city to go to a a, a theatrical to, to to see a play that was it was relevant to to what they were mm. studying so that was another opportunity for students to come together um in the in this kind of way so yeah we have we have an increasing number of examples of this and it's definitely something that we want to continue to encourage well um is this uh, where is this uh, model kind of going? Is there, is it something that uh, smaller schools than uh, Cornell, Columbia, and Yale could do, since they they probably don't have uh, Sinhala and uh, 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 you know Tibetan uh, uh, offered or needed in a way? Yeah. Well, the thing the thing about the shared course initiative is that. In many ways, it's really a, a model that we've developed that can be adapted and deployed in, in different ways. It can um, suit whatever context you might have. I think the most important thing is to think through what kinds of, um, in what in which ways could you potentially collaborate with with other partners? How could you uh, pool together resources to sort of m- mutually benefit all parties and once you've figured that out, then you can figure out what kind of technology you need, what kind of pedagogy you need, what kind of administrative moves you need to make to allow that to happen. But I think that the less commonly taught languages is really a, a productive space in which you can do that because it's often the case that different universities don't have the same less commonly taught mm-hmm. languages, so you don't really have an overlap. Um, it might not work so well for Spanish, for example, because every university has Spanish instruction. And their classes tend to be full up and, to, the, sure. to the number they, they, they need. Because exactly. that's, that's still an issue with this. Uh, a language class with two students in it is a little bit uh, dead in a way. And the uh, I know that's that's happened sometimes. And the teacher ends up having to adapt everything to the particular interests of those two students and can't do her her curriculum uh, uh, as uh, as she'd like to. On the other hand, the maximum there's a maximum number that works really well for um, language classes uh, too, um, though that varies at different colleges. But in this kind of setting, what seems to be the maximum that we can handle? We we say twelve. Twelve is our maximum. Um, and once you 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 know there can be an exception to that. We can maybe go a little bit more. But, um, you know, we find that when you have two big screens, two 70, 80-inch screens um, showing three sites at the same time, you don't want to have too many students. So there is there's really kind of a sweet spot between 6 and 12 for these less commonly taught language classes. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's true that if you, if you think about it, if you're taking a class with just one other student, you know, you only have one other person to talk to mm-hmm. besides the instructor. Uh, but when you when you open it up and you have maybe two or three sites participating, then you also have 
more peers, more people to talk to, more people who are going through the same um, process of language learning that you are. And actually, uh, another site gives a kind of dynamism to the to the class. Like there's the old uh, display question teachers ask. Uh, well, what's the weather out today when everybody in the class knows what the weather <laughs> right. is because they just right. walked into the classroom. But when people are at a different in a different city, that can be a, that turns into a real question that they that they have to answer and really inform each other. I mean, yeah, it's uh, it's always kind of surprising to me how how different the weather is yeah, between yeah. New Haven, uh, Columbia, and New York City, and and uh, Cornell, yeah, in Ithaca. Um, up, up here in the frozen north, right? <laughs> but definitely in a in an elementary level class, that's a classic um, activity or a question right. or, or or line of discussion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody talks about the weather, even right. though nobody ever does anything about it. As Mark <laughs> Twain said. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, Chris. It's been very interesting. Thank you so much for having me. And just a, a quick plug, if I may, um, you can find us online at sharedcourseinitiative.org, or just Google Shared Course Initiative, and, and we should be one of the first things that you see. So, thanks a lot. The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu or look for Cornell LRC on Facebook and Twitter. Speaking of Language is produced by Sam Lukwitz and Dan Gable. Recorded by Sam Lupwitz. Original music by Sam Lupwitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson.